to the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. Have you ever wondered how people succeed in real estate and what steps they took to get there? If so, this podcast is for you. Your hosts, Sayla and Eileen Prack, interview top experts in the real estate community to share with you their real estate journey and how they achieved massive success. Our goal is to provide you with valuable real estate resources and to help you apply it to your own real estate goals. Welcome to today's episode of the How Did They Do It Real Estate Podcast. I'm your host, Eileen Prack. And today we have a guest for you, special guest for you, Scott Crone, and he specializes in self-storage. So Scott, welcome to the show. How are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thanks for having me. Looking forward to this. So Scott, I would love to hear a little bit more about your background, if you can share with the listeners and how you got started in real estate. I began because uh, originally our family had a a family business and uh, I learned that I was not going to be joining the family in the family business because they were going to sell it. And so that was a big transition for our family. You know, I was going to be fourth. I was fourth generation. I did work there for a little bit of time, but you know that allowed me the opportunity to refocus and, and understand what I wanted to do. And so I began getting my master's in architecture, and that's how my career in real estate began. Was getting my master's in architecture. Got it. And so after you got your master's in architecture, what did you do after that? And how did you end up in the self storage space? What kind of attracted you to it? And what did you look for? Well, the first part of it was I began in real estate while getting my master's. My professor, who I was his TA, he owned a real estate development, architecture, and contracting company. And so it was a large, we worked on large multifamily deals. So my master's thesis was a a 400 unit that we worked on for the three years I was in school, but then also I worked for him for three years after I graduated. And then I started my own company in 1998, Coda Design Build. And how we got into self storage was we had a client that was interested in buying distressed self-storage, and we couldn't find a distressed self-storage facility. And this was in the post-crash, post-08, 09 crash. And we looked at developing one, and that's how we got involved in self-storage. So the first one that you did was you developed your own self-storage? We reconverted a... uh, We bought 90,000 square feet, and we converted 70,000 of that to self-storage. And then the whole building was flipped to uh, Compass Self-Storage. Oh, wow. And so with the rest of the land out there, after you had developed it into the majority of it into self-storage, what did you do with the rest of the land or what was that space used for? Uh, the other 20,000 square feet went to become self-storage and then they uh, actually added more lockers outside the building. So the they further developed what we developed. Got it. So for you, when you were looking to develop, you know, what were the three main, maybe like the top main factors that you were looking to incorporate into developing the self-storage to meeting your needs? Well, the first thing we always look at is what is the market saturation? Is there enough um, demand or is there too much supply out there to determine whether or not there is even a need for what we're going to be offering? Then the second thing is we look for the building. What makes a good building and does it align itself and to convert easily? And then the last thing we look for is at the zoning, You know, what necessary steps we have to take in order to convert the whole process into self-storage. Got it. And so now today, do you primarily do the development or do you look for other already standing self-storage units? We do both. And if we're, if there are existing buildings, then we look to see how we can expand them and add on to them. So um, inherently, I'm always a developer, which means improving properties and increasing the, the, the rental, rental income off of them. So that's what we're always looking to do. And so when you mentioned the increasing the rental income off of it, what are some of the different ways that you've seen have proven to be the best strategies in order to increase the revenue and the income? Well, there's, there's only really two different ways to increase the income. And so either the NOI, I should say, is to increase the gross income or cut the expenses. So if we can increase the income either through better management, um, looking at the market in terms of what it's been doing, if they haven't raised prices in a while, 
or expansion. If we can add more units, we can get more income. On the expense side, it's just monitoring and managing the expenses. And that was the biggest reason why we started our own brand, One Stop Self Storage. We just launched that earlier in the year was because we were seeing great inefficiencies in uh, uh, the management by our third-party REITs. And so we brought that in-house and we've, uh, managed, we're managing the facilities now ourselves. Got it. So one of the things that you'd mentioned was sometimes you'll look to add more units onto a, an existing property. And so when you're building it up, you know, is there a certain size that's the most popular or that you have seen to be increasing the revenue the most compared to the other sizes? That's all based upon the demographics. We'll spend a lot of money doing uh, studies to understand the demographics of the marketplace. So the higher the medium income, then the general tendency is they would want bigger units and the lower the medium income, then they'll want smaller units. And so they'll be willing to pay a higher price per square foot for a smaller unit than a larger one in a lower uh, medium income neighborhood. Got it. So then do you self-manage all of your properties or do you have a, an on-site property manager that handles the different your different properties? Well, we have people that are on-site for sure, except for our smallest one, which is 100% remote. But they're all, all of our facilities are under the one-stop self-storage brand. And uh, anything that we add will be under that brand as well. So as you were building up to today, you know, what was kind of like the biggest challenge that you faced as you've been growing your business in the self-storage? Well, it was dealing with some organizational structure issues that we had within our company in terms of a, a previous partner that I had and getting beyond that. But, you know, we are focusing on doing things right. And, you know, what that former partner was doing was not in alignment with that. And so we've had to overcome that challenge. And it was, it's been, you know, seven years of working through that issue. That's been our biggest challenge, you know, but that if you can get something done and move beyond it, then it's better to be there because of the fact that uh, you can move forward as opposed to having to constantly go back and do something. So, you know, we'd rather do something right once than have to do it time and time again. And if you were to look back at from where you started to where you are today, was there like one specific great idea or anything like that, that was like an aha moment that had elevated you, helped to elevate you to the next level? Well, I've had two major mentors in my life. One was my professor and taught me the more of the, the down and dirty the, of the development. When I say that, it's just like physically how to do the development and the design and build of the construction. And my other mentor helped me understand the business aspect of things in terms of looking at it more globally in a broader perspective. And so, you know, the aha moment for me on that was the first mentor was very secretive and, and confidential in terms of what they were doing. And there's still obviously a need to do those things. But my other mentor brought in the notion of being able to utilize other people, other resources, and make it more of a collaboration rather than a all or nothing singular type entity. And so that's been a big change for us is the collaborations that we've been able to do to accomplish things and, and be able to grow our company because of that, rather than just trying to do everything ourselves. Got it. And so when you're looking to build out your company, you know, what are some of the different aspects that you look for in terms of attributes in the different companies and the different partners that you're looking to build up and grow with? Well, I think the biggest thing is an attitude of growth. If you don't have that attitude of growth and doing things better, then you'll become stale and stagnant, at least for myself. And so, you know, we're always looking to improve. Another reason why we started One Stop Self Storage, we saw problems, we saw challenges. And rather than just allowing that to continue, we said, we're going to take things into our own hands and, and make sure that these things are getting done because of the fact that they weren't being done properly. And are you located in uh, specific different markets that you particularly focus on? We're focusing on the Midwest. So we are in Wisconsin, Illinois, Ohio, Kentucky, and we have one facility in Maine which is a little bit of an outlier, but we like going there. 
So we're focusing on the Midwest predominantly. And so if we take an example of if there was already uh, self-storage that you had just purchased and it wasn't a development project and you had just purchased over and then upon takeover, you know, what has been the biggest, I guess, the biggest obstacles as you're taking over a new property and turning it over? It's just implementing the new systems and making sure everybody's on board with those new systems. And it's being run in a way in which you're desiring it to be run. Think of it as like having an apartment building. It's no different for us than having an apartment building, but instead of like 40 units or 50 units, we have like a hundred or 200 or 600 units. And so, you know, we just have to make sure that we have all the information and know how to get hold of everybody and processing the contracts and those sorts of things. So that's always the, the biggest challenge is the, when you're taking over facility is making sure you have all the information. And so like with your property managers and on-site uh, staff, um, you know, like what's the level of communication that you have with them in order to make sure that you're staying on top of all the day-to-day activities, not let any of the balls that you're juggling fall out? Well, we get daily reports. So we, we'll know what's going on in terms of our lease up or our rental experience. Um, we have daily reports, which I check. And then, you know, we're, our director of construction is always in contact with on staff as well, especially when we're first turning over a building. Um, but, you know, as this facility gets going more and more and it's operating smoother and smoother, then, you know, we'll go from daily down to weekly or even monthly that we just check in and make sure things are going well. So one of the properties that you'd mentioned, your most recent one, I think you said is 100% fully remote. Uh, it's not our most recent, but yes, it is uh, 100% remote. It, is that something that you had, was that part of the business plan to make it 100% remote? And is that what your plan is for like the other properties? Or how do you balance between doing it remotely and then also um, you know, having the on-staff people there? Well, remote doesn't mean we don't have people there. It means that there's no sales office there. So we do have people that are there watching it and monitoring it for us. But yes, to answer your question, it was our original plan to have that one be remote just because of the nature and the size of it. But we have full-time customer service via phone as well as internet. And then we have staff that monitors and, and maintains the facility on the location. We just don't have a sales office. And so there are ways in which to rent and, and have that rental experience without having someone on site. We love hosting this show. When we started this podcast, we were doing all the editing and post-production ourselves. Now, we are very excited to have this particular company as a partner of the show to do all the post-production for us, because it gives us the freedom to focus on the two things we care about, serving you, our listener, at a higher level, and growing our own multifamily business. If you are like Sayla and me, then you want to add value to others while scaling your business. A podcast is the best way to do both, and we invite you to contact Adam Adams. He can help you launch your podcast, market your show for more listeners, and take all the post-production off your plate so you can focus on your business instead of in it. Listeners of this show can get a free consultation with Adam. To schedule your free consultation, find the link in the show notes. Got it. And so for you, what was one thing that was kind of holding you back as becoming an entrepreneur to be able to scale to where you are today? If there was mindset. anything. Yeah, I think it's mindset that we talked about before. You know, I felt that, we, you know, we had to do it ourselves and that really limited myself in terms of being able to expand and grow. And since my second mentor, that's when we begin moving beyond just here in Chicago and with an area of Chicago to throughout Chicago. And then in our first expansion was in Wisconsin. And then we have two facilities in Ohio. And so we've just been able to continue to grow based upon that mindset. Got it. And what is the best way that you've found so far to be able to find properties that meet your criteria for acquisition? 
Well, we're a little bit different because of the fact that we're buying non-self-storage facilities and converting them into self-storage. Plus, we're also working on existing ones. So we don't have just one way of getting properties. We have wholesalers, we have brokers, we have attorneys, title companies. They are all they come across something that they think might meet our criteria, they're sending them to us as well as people. You know, we have someone that comes calls us up and says, Hey, I, I thought this facility was perfect for self-storage. And then we would take a look at it. And sometimes it is and sometimes it's not, but we go through the same process with people. So during the conversion phase, typically how long does that process take to fully convert it over to a functioning self-storage uh, property? Well, once we get the permit, it takes about nine months, depending on the size and how much we have to do to it. So typically about nine months is what it takes to con- to convert a building. Got it. And then from the permit standpoint, how long does that usually take to get that permit? Oh, that's anyone's guess. <laughs> I mean, we, we went in for permit in Louisville and it took us six months to get a comment. And we submitted revisions without having comments. We just turned in new sets of drawings. We originally got them in because we didn't know how long the process would take. And we knew that there's always going to be comments. So better to get them in than be perfect. And then we made um, some revisions and we finally, this is all because of COVID, but you know, we were able to finally reach someone and say, Hey, look, we've been in for eight months. We need to have a meeting or discuss or review this. And so it all depends on the municipality and how busy they are and where they're located and what their staff is. And so from your experience, what has been kind of like the biggest holdback from getting the permit? Well, I mean, the biggest holdback is always interpretation of the code. And so it's getting a good understanding of what the code is and then providing a solution that meets that interpretation of the code. Every municipality differs with the code and which code they've adopted, which year. And so we just have to be fluid in terms of making sure that we're adhering to that specific code as opposed to the most current one or one from two years ago or three years ago, because each municipality has their own year that they've adopted. Got it. And so from the self-storage standpoint, what is your outlook on how self-storage will be performing in the, you know, in the near future? Well, it's no surprise to everybody that the way in which we use our homes has dramatically changed and the way in which businesses have used supply inventory has changed dramatically. I mean, we're undergoing one of the biggest shortages of raw materials right now. And so, you know, everybody is using their existing, let's just call it facilities differently. And so as a result, there's been an increase in demand in self-storage. And self-storage historically has done very well during recessions, so much so that I, I deemed it recessionary resistant. A lot of people would call it recessionary proof, but you know I don't think anything is proof in real estate except that the market will turn. But I think there's still long-term good growth in self-storage. I mean, right now, less than around 10% of the population utilizes self-storage in one capacity or another. And so as housing gets more expensive, as housing becomes more scarce or same with businesses or the way in which people are using business, you know they don't want to have as much overhead and self-storage is a viable option to uh, control that. Throughout your journey, you know, was there anything that was surprising to you in the self-storage space that you didn't, you weren't expecting? Just how predictable the model is. I mean, it's just, when I first began looking into it, I couldn't believe that I could, we couldn't find a distressed self-storage facility. It was just, it did not exist. And so as a result of it, it's, it's very hard to find one. So that's the biggest thing is um, just how resilient the asset class is. Got it. And so Scott, for you, what is next for you and your company? We're always positioning our product so that we can sell it off to a, mid, a mid-level REIT, you know, like a portfolio of about $100 million or plus. And so that is what we're focusing on is developing that portfolio and so that, that we can uh, take advantage of cap compression by selling to a, a mid-level REIT. Got it. And for you, how has real estate investing impacted your life so far? 
it's well, I've, I've you know owned the company since 1998, so you know it's it's been everything impacted my life. You know, it's my family, my kids, everybody, my entire family has been around since I you know started my own company. I mean, I got married in '96, and in '98 I started my company, so it's dramatically impacted it. <laughs> I don't know if I can succinctly answer that question. But um, it's it's shaped who I've become. It's shaped why we do things and how we go about things and certainly shaped my kids' lives as well. And I would love to ask if you're open to answering it. Are your kids also involved in the self-storage space with you? Are they interested in what you're doing? No, my oldest one just graduated and she's, she discovered during COVID when she came home in the fall, in the spring, I'm sorry, from um, her junior year, when the campuses first shut down, she became an EMT driver. And, and so she learned during that period of time that she really wanted to serve women. And so she's going to become a doctor and nurse practitioner to serve women's health. So, um, and then my son and my daughter, my other daughter are still in, in school. And so it's too early to say for them what they're going to be doing, but you know, so far I would say not real estate they're looking and that's encouraging. I'm encouraging them to explore whatever they want to do, as opposed to just trying to force them into a family business. Yeah, absolutely. And and that's great that your daughter was able to find her passion and to be able to serve other people. That need is always there. And so that's really great that she's able to find her passion. Absolutely. And is there one thing that you know now about real estate that you wish you knew when you first started? Boy, I mean, I don't know if I would have started at 28 if I hadn't understood the, the risks that I understand now. I mean, it, back then it just seemed a lot more simple, build it and they will come. But um, there's We've certainly developed the complexities of our systems a whole lot more thoroughly than what we did back then. So you know, I think the breadth of knowledge that I have now compared to, I don't know why I would have started back then. <laughs> no, I think ignorance is bliss. So, but I think a lot, a lot of people get, you know, analysis by paralysis and they, they get, they have a fear of starting something, but you know, whenever you start something, you got to start, you got to take the first step and you won't know everything. And that's half the fun, right? It's learning and growing and, and developing your skills. And so I think that's part of the challenge of anybody who's starting a business or starting adventures. You just got to have enough confidence to take the first step. And so, you know, you mentioned that you started when you were back in, when you were 28 years old. And so for people who wanted to get started today, you know, do you think that there's a large barrier to entry to get into the space? Into real estate? Yes. No, I mean, it's, I think the, we took advantage of a lot of the t- same tax, the tax principles that are out there right now. I think um, obviously the Biden administration is changing the tax codes quite a bit. So that will have some impact. But I think that there's plenty of markets where you can thrive. Here in Chicago, the market has changed. I'd say, I think it's a little bit more risky here than when I first started. Our first project, we bought a house for $300,000. We tore it down and built a new one and sold it in nine months for a million fifty. I mean, that was the, the first project that we did. So is the, are those same market conditions out here? No, but other people are certainly thriving in um, different markets within the single family. So I think within single family or commercial or you know multifamily or what we're doing, there's still opportunity to get involved and grow. So what is one thing that sets the successful people apart in the real estate investing business? Buying right. If you don't buy right, you're fighting the curve the whole way. And um, it's incredibly important that you you know, make sure that when you're going into the venture, you're not overpaying on the front end because it's it's so hard to recover from that. And do you have any tools or techniques that you've used to improve the efficiency of your life or your business? Well, there's quite a bit of tools <laughs> for business as well. I mean, we have new software that we're implementing for our investors We, in terms of how we track things, all those sorts of things that we're doing now. 
in our research, our data research is so much more sophisticated than when I first began. And back in 1998, on, on a personal side, I'm going through a two-year program called um, the Transformation Center, where it's learning to develop different skills within leadership. And so that, that's one of the things that I've been doing. I began at this past fall and we'll be going through for the next two years. Awesome. Thank you so much, Scott, for sharing all of that. My pleasure. And so for our listeners who are listening today, you know, if they want to find out more about you, your story and what you're doing, where's the best place that they can go to find out more? Well, our website is codamg.com. So that's C-O-D-A-M-G.com. And Eileen, if you know they mention this show, if someone reaches out at info at codamg.com and want to learn more about self-storage, we'll we will provide them with a free feasibility study of a project that we did so they can show how we got into that market and why we chose that market. And and it explains not only that, but how the whole industry works. And so it's a, it's a very good resource, about 175 pages. And uh, we will give that to your listeners if they mention your show. Wow, that's an incredible resource. And thank you so much again, Scott. I really appreciate you coming on the show today. Thank you. And thank you for listening to our podcast today, brought to you by Bonavest Capital. We would really appreciate it if you can go to iTunes right now and leave a rating and written review. Also, please don't forget to subscribe so you can always get the latest episodes. You can also connect with us on Facebook, How Did They Do It Real Estate? We'd love to hear your feedback and any topics that you're interested in for future episodes. Lastly, to learn more about us, you can go to bonifestcapital.com and fill out the contact us page so you can speak to us directly. Nothing on the show should be considered as specific personal advice. Please consult your legal, tax, and real estate professionals for individualized advice.